Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining me today is JP Lochry. JP is a consultant in emergency medicine in the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow and spends half of his time working with EMRS Scott Star doing retrieval work in the west of Scotland. He's got a particular interest in major incidents and is the Scott Star lead for major incident planning and has been involved with several large-scale incidents in the past. Other than that, he's a fairly busy man and we've taken a little while to track you down, JP. So thank you very much for coming on to join us. Not at all. Thanks very much for the invite. So, major incidents. These are things that always gets the blood up, I guess. Where do we start? So, I think we start by looking at the way that we prepare and train effectively for these things. And the main way that we can do that is by learning from past mistakes and from past triumphs as well. Because the experience that's gone before is always the most valuable because you can plan as much as you like for these things. But as you know, plans never survive first contact with the enemy, in this case, a real major incident. So I think looking back at some of our previous major incidents in the west of Scotland, in Scotland and across the world, gives us some really useful learning and areas that we can then train and develop and practice. I guess that the first thing is when these things get called. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because that's very variable depending on where you are in the country. So where I work in the Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow, we've got a large resource room, a very big emergency department, and our ambulance service has ready access to many large emergency departments, major trauma centres and trauma units. However, if you take the same incident out of the city centre of Glasgow and put that in rural Scotland somewhere, that's clearly going to have a much wider reaching impact on pre-hospital providers, on local responding basics GPs, on local emergency departments, if indeed there are emergency departments in the local healthcare facilities. So it's a very variable feast, unfortunately, for major incidents because we really can prepare for the things that we expect to see and some of those follow predictable patterns of bus crashes and train crashes. Some of them are slightly more unpredictable, like the civil unrest that we've seen in Glasgow recently, and then some of them are the flashbang out of the blue that are completely unpredictable. It's interesting you know, where I'm based in Pilochery. Actually, even a two-car RTC can be a pretty major incident to us, given that we've got one local crew and maybe an RIU if we're lucky, but everything else is going to come from Perth, Dundee or the Central Belt. Yeah, and that's a challenge for the local teams is to prepare and train for that because help will come, but help can be a little while before it reaches. And that help might always look slightly different as well. And they might approach that incident differently than you would have because we are accustomed to incidents of these sizes. But as you say, having a two-car RTC, such as we've had in the northwest of Scotland this week, can significantly stretch the healthcare assets there until significant other help can arrive. So training and practicing for the initial response of these incidents is the main way to make sure that you look after yourself and give the best care to our patients as well. With your EMRS Scott Star hat on, you know, air and the ability to move specialist assets around will have had a huge impact on this. That gives us great opportunity, both in getting teams and getting major incident teams to patients and to incidents. It also gives you the opportunity to then move patients quickly to definitive care. Clearly, Scotland's a very disparate country in terms of its geography and its healthcare setup. So 
healthcare on the remote islands of Scotland can seem like a long and distant way in adverse weather conditions. Inserting specialist teams into major incidents in those areas to help with the command and control elements and structure, and that can be very quick. So in Scotstar in the west of Scotland, we have a team on base from 7am till 11pm for immediate dispatch for pre-hospital trauma incidents, including for major incidents. We have a second team available who can similarly respond during that those times. And then we also have a call-in procedure where we can mount multiple teams to get to the base, be equipped and then be transported to the scene. And that includes various different transport platforms, depending on where in the country that is. That can be on Helimed 5, our small air ambulance helicopter, which is a, a two EMRS team plus two paramedics, plus the most important person for that, of course, the pilot. But we can also then mount responses that we can go on additional aircraft. So if it's somewhere where there's a landing strip nearby, then actually flying in the King Air fixed wing aircraft and then being transported by land to the incident. But recently we have had incidents where the Coast Guard helicopter, which is a larger rotary platform, has come up to the airport and picked up multiple teams to get them to the scene of significant incidents at the same time. And that really gives the benefit of the training and experience that we've managed to undertake, the equipment that we've got and the expertise that we've got in, both in the management of the critically injured and unwell patient, but also in the command and control which we train for, for taking that sort of oversight and overview of the incident and of its wider impact in healthcare and always thinking forward, always maintaining momentum of how we are going to get those patients onto definitive care. I guess it's worth just touching on the fact that that's, that's an approach that's replicated across Scotland with obviously the, the various teams. Yeah, so we're very lucky in Scotland that we have a government-funded aeromedical retrieval service integrated within the ambulance service. So Scotstar comprises of the adult retrieval service, which is EMRS, which has two teams on duty in the west and one team on duty in the north at any one time. We also have the other responders from the other red teams. So a red team in Scotland is a pre-hospital critical care team, physician-led and physician-delivered care, but never working as only doctors, always working as part of an ambulance service response. And those services are able to deliver pre-hospital critical care, including emergency anesthesia, blood transfusion and surgical procedures. And for those, we have red teams from Medic One out of the emergency department of the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. We also have the Tayside Trauma Team, the ED call-out team from Ninewells Hospital in Dundee. And they have a long history of responding to rural incidents, predominantly trauma, but some medical as well, and of responding on their own, but also in conjunction with other elements of the ambulance service and Scotstar to other major incidents. So that sort of mutual aid and mutual resilience gives us a really useful national bolster whenever a big incident occurs. Of course, that only really covers the big urban conurbations. There's large swathes of the country that I've not talked about just now. So, for example, up in Inverness with the Highland Pick team, basics responders all across the country. And some places such as Ben Bekula, where I visited a couple of years ago doing some major incident training with them, where, as I've said, help can be a little bit away and local GPs and local responders would form the MIO, Medical Incident Officer team, until help can come from the other networks as well. Because of our co-location with Helimed, we have a relatively large geographical area of coverage for major incident, including GG&C, Lanarkshire, Ayrshire, but also including lots of the west coast of Scotland and the Highlands. We also managed to reach other areas that overlap with some of the other trauma teams, 
And in those circumstances, training together and practicing together for major incident work is very important because we have to have the same language, we have to have the same communications, we also have to have the professionalism and courtesy to recognise when someone is in command and in charge and adopt good followership in those circumstances as well. It's really interesting how that jigsaw all fits together. And there's certainly been cases that have been involved in the, in the past where you guys have come up and fitted into the model that's already working on the ground, be that mountain rescue or involving with the RNLI or involving with the local services as well. Yeah, and that's a really important role for us as well. It's not just coming in, barging in and taking over an incident and not communicating or working with the teams that have been there on scene, sometimes for some considerable time with a much better understanding of what's happening. But also those teams have often got a lot of local expertise and knowledge. They'll know the crews that they're working with. They'll know the fire and rescue operatives that are working with them as well. So it is sometimes the appropriate thing that the MIO or the team that are already there retain command and control. They stay in charge of the incident and we operate as a forward medical team under their control. And that was sort of demonstrated pretty well in some rural incidents that I've been involved in where We've brought our specific skills and our experience and equipment to the patient, but obviously that's still someone else's patient. And that's one of the best things that I like to do when arriving on pre-hospital scenes is not arriving and finding out who was in charge and stepping them down, but asking them, how can I help with your patient? What was your plan? What's your mental model? And how can I help to contribute to that patient's care? What bits do you want me to do? Rather than just taking over, thanking them and sending them on their way. And you know, as somebody who works rurally, that's really reassuring because it means that you know, suddenly the, the cavalry are riding over the horizon, but you're not going to feel stepped on and it's very much a kind of integration rather than, as you say, a, a takeover. Oh, yeah. And that's, again, another big aspect of pre-hospital care in Scotland is it's very collegiate and collaborative. It's really heartwarming to get to incidents and see familiar faces that you've worked with, trained with in various courses that are already in control of the scene. It's a big country, but it's small enough that the community knows each other and trains together. So that's always good. And these communities have to exist after we've flown in and flown back out again. So going in, angering people by taking over is really not the way to go because that medical team, that paramedic team, that fire team are going to continue to work together on other incidents and making sure that we feed back appropriately. And that's usually positively is one of the big aspects that we can have in helping people shape their careers with the confidence and enthusiasm that most people almost all of the time are doing a really, really good job. I guess looking at this from the governance angle, obviously the Scottish government has got a, a huge say in, in the direction of planning for, for major incidents, but I'm assuming that the Scottish Ambulance Service, the overall coordinators of this? Yeah, so the, the tri-service approach to major incidents is that the fire, police and ambulance services are the command services. Those are the ones that respond to major incidents. They have a statutory responsibility to respond to those incidents as well. And really, there's been a huge amount of work modernising major incident plans in Scotland, driven mostly by the inception of the Scottish Trauma Network, but also shaped by learning from other incidents in other areas of the country, such as Manchester, which is very topical and in the news just now as the inquiries continue into that. But the ambulance service has really taken on a great deal of work in the last two and a half to three years of modernising the major incident plans, ensuring that people that will be responding to pre-hospital incidents are appropriately trained and equipped. But as you've said, they're governed. We know how they're operating, under what policies and procedures, what the scope of practice is, and also that we've 
agreed in the cold light of day what the action cards and the roles and responsibilities will be for those practitioners. It's really important to say at this point, I believe that there is no medical incident commander in Scotland in the Scottish Major Incident Plan. There's medical incident officers and there's ambulance incident commanders. So actually, that's usually the area service manager or more senior than that that forms the ambulance incident commander and medical teams operate under their direction. So that's a very symbiotic relationship when it works well that the medical incident officer goes in with their expertise, their knowledge, and is able to advise and help the incident commander make effective decisions, triage appropriately, especially when it comes to limiting care for patients who've got devastating injuries, but also in prioritising patients with their knowledge of what the definitive care they need and the timeliness of that. So again, talking about the relationship of the way that medical teams work alongside the ambulance service, it really is important to recognise that the ambulance service have primacy when it comes to health, but that we operate under them. And I've never in any of my incidents had an ambulance incident commander who's rejected the advice of the doctors. It's usually taken under significant advisement given our own areas of expertise as well. It's really interesting that balance between the medical piece as a clinician of whatever flavour, you know, wanting to do the best for the patient, but equally there is very much a strategic and oversight piece. And I would imagine it's going to be a pretty frustrating job trying to take on the ownership of the strategic elements and trying to get the medics to <laughs> to, to play the game. Yeah, there's a slide I've shown in many talks as well about critical care well heard in cats. And that's sometimes the patients and it's sometimes the bystanders, but it can also be the healthcare providers. When you go into a major incident as the medical team, lots of people see you as the cavalry arriving and lots of people try and take you to see their patient that they've triaged that they're really worried about. Staying in that oversight, command and control, triage mode for as long as you can, making sure that the interventions that are applied are the basics done very well and that we're communicating effectively to make sure that we get the right resources to the scene is the priority. It's very difficult when someone's taking you by the hand to please come and help put a cannula in this patient who's very sore and trying to explain that that's not necessarily the right job for that moment as well. So I like the critical care anywhere of Scottstar, but major incident has a bit more critical care while herding cats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hugely difficult to do for you guys as the people coming in wearing the hero suits and the limited exposure I've had is, is very similar. You get drawn in very easily into the individual patients. And as soon as you do that, you lose that situational piece completely. It's relatively easy for me because I'm quite identifiable. I'm 6'3 and pushing 100 kilos. So when someone tries to take me anywhere, I don't want to go. I just <laughs> put the dead weight on and don't move. But I'm sure that if you're new to pre-hospital care from a medical perspective, and someone's asking you to come and please help them, that can be very difficult to then turn that request down. But yeah, the, the continually training with these things and the stress inoculation of exercising it or being involved in incidents is really important for recognising how you will react when you're faced with one of these live incidents. You don't want that to be in reality for the first time. It is, unfortunately, for many people. But getting along to as many major incident exercises and training days as you can can help to build that stress inoculation. Okay, speaking of stress inoculation, let's pick over some incidents that have happened and maybe what we can take away from them. Yeah, so the first big incident that I recall that kind of piqued my interest for major incidents was Stockline, which was a plastics distribution company up in the north of Glasgow in Maryhill. This incident happened in 
around about May 2004 at about lunchtime in a large plastics factory. There were about 100 people in the factory which exploded and nine people were unfortunately killed with 33 injured. This incident, as you can see from the pictures, some of those ambulances I'm sure are still in frontline operations, but it demonstrated quite effectively that one of these buildings goes down, that's going to be a significant risk for any responders going into that building and people doing that should be adequately protected and trained, should only be allowed into that cordon when someone can guarantee that they're adequately protected and can be quite a protracted and prolonged incident as well. As you can see from the pictures, there's a casualty clearing station popped up green tent which is still in use today and that gives a useful base for a protracted incident because these patients aren't going to be coming out in 20s and 30s, they're going to be coming out in 1s and 2s. It also was one of the incidents where we had medical teams going out from local hospitals and some of the responding physicians that went to that incident are my EMRS and ED colleagues of today and the stories that they tell of that day has really led to shaping the way that I think about major incidents in terms of staff safety and scene safety first because we can't go in and help anyone if we've become injured by falling masonry or by exposed sharp things, electricity etc. So working alongside fire and rescue services is really important to make sure that they know what we want and we communicate that effectively but also that if we get told to step back because something's not safe we have to recognise that they're in charge when it comes to the inner cordon. There is definitely an element of almost discipline here in terms of not diving in, not getting involved, keeping that tactical overview and equally following instructions from other folk, even though it goes against your clinical urge to, to get amongst it. Yeah, as an emergency physician, when I'm on in the research room, everyone's looking to me to be the one, quote, in charge. But at a major incident, that might change and I might be operating under the command and control of a local ambulance incident commander I might be operating only under the direction of fire and rescue who will allow me parameters to go in, do what I need to do and go back out again. So there is a lot of personal discipline that goes into that of recognising who the right person is to make those decisions at that time and recognising when our desire and our training is kicking in for wanting to do the most for the patient and that might have an opportunity cost which we'll come on to talk about again later that the things that we might do might then commit us to look after that patient for a considerable period of time and that might remove our ability to look after further patients on the scene who could need many basic interventions. But if we're not available to do those, then that's not much use to that patient at that time. What about stepping out into more of the rural environment? I know there's been some interesting cases but away from the, the central belt. Yeah, there was one particular incident up in the rest and be thankful where a Locks and Glens bus tour crashed and there were about 23 people injured during that one. This happened in, I believe it was late March, but as you can see from the pictures, there's still quite a lot of snow on the hills. It was a very windy day in poor conditions and surrounded by hills, so communications with the scene was particularly difficult. We also experienced in this one the, the well-meaning of bystanders, so many of the bystanders were trying to assist the casualties. Many of them were trying to get them into vehicles so that they weren't exposed to the elements because it was a particularly cold, wet and windy day. And that also meant that some casualties weren't accounted for immediately because we couldn't see everyone at the same time because some had already been placed into ambulances. We learned a lot about healthcare of people who go on Locks and Glens tours that day as well. <laughs> so there were, I think the average age was somewhere in the high 70s of that tour as well, which 
was a big spurt of silver trauma to the hospitals in the west of Scotland that received the casualties as well. Some of the patients were also moved to rural healthcare facilities at Loch Gilped in Campbelltown, which was again splitting a major incident scene, but it was in hospitals that we are familiar with as EMRS. We provide secondary care to those coming in, helping with the stabilisation, resuscitation of transfer of those casualties from the local GPs who work in those hospitals. So that was a setting that was familiar to us. There's basic imaging available there. It's warm, it's light, and they've got very well good established links with local healthcare and with transport to then coordinate the organised transport of casualties from there. Plus they've got good communication and you can actually get a mobile phone signal. So that's one of the sort of bus crashes that is almost standard for a major incident. As you can see from that, a bus crash up in next to Loch Rest with 23 people injured can be considered a major incident. But that incident taken into the city centre of Glasgow is going to be much better compensated by the proximity to definitive care than multiple, multiple ambulances that you would get in Glasgow and the heavy fire and rescue resources but also just the ability to get teams there quickly and be able to see and hear from them. Sometimes from press and media pictures that you'll see being live streamed onto Twitter, for example. And that's again another thing that we've learned through various major incidents is that lots of these photos that I've used are freely available from people taking snaps as we've been operating at incidents. And again, that professional and personal discipline comes in when you want to be relaxed and working with the teams, but you have to maintain the discipline that someone's always looking at you. So being relaxed and laughing and joking could be construed pretty badly by bystanders who think that you're at one of these incidents having a good time. Absolutely. And buses seem to be a, a fairly frequent cause of mayhem. Yeah, we go to one of those every couple of years. We had one on the Clydeside Expressway in Glasgow a couple of years ago as well, which I ended up involved in as a medical incident officer, accompanied by several other major incident leads, which was serendipitous. And one of my colleagues, Tim Park, who's one of the associate medical directors of the ambulance service, who ended up as a tactical medical advisor up in control. There was a number of really interesting elements about this job, which led to huge amounts of learning in the way that we distribute casualties as well. So this happened on a Sunday evening it was after a Celtic and Rangers game, which for those that don't know, tends to generate quite a lot of business for our emergency <laughs> departments in Glasgow. I knew that the hospitals were heaving because we'd been in at them earlier. And I knew that this happened at what you would consider a transition zone in the catchment areas between the two hospitals, much closer to the Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow, but pointing in the right direction for getting to Glasgow Royal along the expressway and onto another motorway. So the distribution of casualties of this one was quite an interesting piece to work with. It also led to us realising that you never really realise who is who at a scene. So there was one person who looked vaguely familiar to me who was in a high-vis jacket. And it later transpired that this person was Laura, who's one of the intensive care senior registrars in Glasgow, who I'd worked with before, who was first on scene at this incident as she was driving towards going out for dinner in the west end of Glasgow back when that was a thing before COVID and had witnessed this bus crash, been on scene, taken names, dates of birth from casualties, triaged them, started sorting them out and had managed to get herself a high-vis jacket from one of the local policemen. So Laura was a hugely helpful asset to us on that day that meant that we didn't need another medical team because she looked after a lot of the P3 casualties 
accompanied with all of the guys who were from the ambulance service already responding. So you never really know when you're going to end up at one of these major incidents and what you're going to be wearing at that time as well. Absolutely. And it, it's a comment that's come out in chats with folk in the past about having access to basic things like a high-vis jacket and some ID just for having about in the car. Yeah, it's really easy to get over-enthusiastic about all the things you might need in your car. And I've seen some people who've got tremendously well-kitted out boots of their cars as well. So I think having something to protect yourself, so a high-vis jacket and a hat, you know what the weather's like in Scotland. I like to wear a hat if my ears are getting cold. Have an ID because if you're a first responder or you're passing by when an incident happens, as soon as that cordon's drawn up, you won't be allowed to go in to respond in that cordon unless you can identify yourself. So I usually have a notepad, my EMRS ID, some very basic hemorrhage control and airway things like a couple of oropharyngeal airways and some catastrophic dressings so that I can dress some bleeding wounds. And then I make sure that I've got a mobile phone charger with me because the the drain on your phone battery when you're constantly trying to communicate using maps for GPS, using WhatsApp for communication sometimes in some major incidents, all of that's a huge drain in your battery. So you can usually find someone that's got a charger somewhere that you can borrow as well. But having some of the very basic things available to you is really important. And also making sure you know how to park your car in defensive position and that you're not going to get your car sideswiped by some over-enthusiastic other responder who's coming into the scene as well. Absolutely. What about when we move into sort of more urban areas where you get a lot more in the way of passerbys and interested other parties? Yeah, so a good one to sort of discuss that and illustrate that would be the roller coaster incident at M&D's theme park at Strathclyde Park, which happened a few years ago, where, again, this was one that we could almost see live footage from Twitter as passers-by were taking pictures and video footage from this as well. What happened in that is that one of the roller coaster rides detached and fell off and then landed on almost like a small children's ride where there's the small motorbikes and fake cars, which is for the kids who are too small to go on the roller coasters. So the bystanders in this one were the stricken parents who'd witnessed this incident happening. Other bystanders were healthcare professionals who were out with their families and who were then able to help, often with a triage of casualties as well. That leads to a very difficult element where you have to manage the injured patients but you also have the parents who are obviously very worried about what's happened to their children who've often suffered very bad injuries and making sure that they can be with their child at that time as long as it's safe because they can be a huge help to you managing to calm the child down enough to be able to assess them but children tend not to carry ID which we've learned from this and we learned from other major incidents such as in Manchester so even being able to give you the name and date of birth of your patient is really useful. Past medical history is often very significant and important as well. But making sure that in major incidents that involve children and adults, that we try and manage those together as much as possible. So one of the big elements that we learned from Manchester was that if you can keep the parent and child together in the hospital that's most appropriate to their needs, so if the child is more badly injured, then that's in the children's hospital. And if it's the converse then you would manage them in the adult hospital but that can have huge benefits to the ongoing rehabilitation and the psychological impact of one of these incidents again with children the children's hospitals in scotland are now set up to take adolescents up to the age of 16 certainly in the central belt but in a major incident we really want to preserve the pediatric function of the children's hospitals as much as possible so we can revert back to the well if they look childlike then they could be managed by the pediatric team 
and if they look more like an adult and they are adolescent or above because there's many 12 and 13 year olds are taller and bigger than some of the ED nurses and some of the EMRS doctors as well actually if they're that sort of size they're much better managed in an adult setting preserving that paediatric capacity and capability so that they can look after the smaller children that wouldn't be effectively looked after in adult hospitals. I guess it's one of the beauties of having that range of options available. I think for a lot yeah. of our responders, they, they've got one rural DGH to feed to and, and everything else is going to start to be you know, into GP surgeries or waiting for secondary transfer. From experience, though, those rural DGHs and rural hospitals and rural GPs are, I believe that's true medicine. You're looking after people of all ages, of all sizes, with whatever comes through that door. You don't get to select like I can when I'm working in the Queen Elizabeth and see only the adults and send the children next door to see my wife who's an ED consultant in the children's hospital and her team. Rural medicine is, I believe, proper medicine because you're looking after those that come to you, whatever's wrong with them. So there's certainly some places in Scotland that I would be more than happy to be an injured casualty and looked after by the local team. And from experience of working with these people over almost a decade now in EMRS, I've learned a lot from them about the pragmatism and practicalities of what medicine's really like rather than when I'm in my ivory tower with a Starbucks on the ground floor. <laughs> now, other incidents that have kind of cropped up have you've not only got the challenge of dealing with parents, but you've also got heightened interest. You mentioned Twitter a lot, but there's press interest in a lot of these things as well. Yeah, so a few incidents within the urban conurbations tend to generate this sort of interest as well. So the Clutha helicopter crash a few years ago was obviously of high press interest because it was a police helicopter and because it was in urban Glasgow. One of the difficulties with this one was the way that it happened and the way we found out about it. So it was a late Friday night when the helicopter crashed into the building. We knew that one of the EMRS teams was out on a retrieval, but we didn't know by what transport method. So there's that emotional aspect of this is potentially one of our teams that's been involved in this incident. And then everyone from the local politicians and the local press are there trying to find out as much information as is possible. It's natural in one of these incidents that everybody wants to know what's happening and is really stricken by this and want to know if their relative or loved one is involved. The police often really need that information early of how many casualties we've got and of what triage categories they are. And that information can sometimes be quite pressing. They're looking for that very early and very persistently. So that can be difficult when we just don't know, for example, what's inside the building because the building's not safe to access yet. There was a lot of help came from the local community in this one. So the mosque is just over the river from the Clutha and opened its doors as a casualty reception centre where people could take a bit of shelter, have food and drink, be looked after until they were collected or be back into the scene if there were responders who were going there. A number of the local hotels and other buildings opened up their doors to help us out as well. So that incident stayed ongoing for a few days, but the, the people of Glasgow really reached out to help us with that one. And then looking on to an incident in Glasgow City Centre, which because of the way the 24-hour media now works, there was live footage coming into ambulance control where I was placed for this incident that showed the trauma teams in their full PPE walking in and out of scene with bags in conversation that showed the area in which some of the patients were being treated and also the, the misinformation that can be quite dangerous in these incidents where a number of passers-by believed what they saw were dead bodies, which they weren't. And they thought that they saw certain things that were then reported in the press, uh, which were a little unhelpful then. 
And that can be quite difficult because you really want to be shouting from the rooftops, that's not true, that's not happening, but you can't. That all has to come from a single source of information that's consistent and correct so that there isn't any confusion in the aftermath of these ones. But that was a very interesting one, especially because it happened during COVID times. So immediately people are checking, right, who's wearing a mask, who's wearing a white suit, and a major incident where everybody's wearing white hazard suits, masks, eye protection. It's very difficult to communicate, but it's also very difficult to identify who is who. So making sure that your tabard goes over the top of your white suit if you're responding to one of these ones, because that can be cleaned down afterwards. But being able to identify yourself and communicate in one of these instances is crucial, but very difficult. Yeah, I mean, that communication piece is, is hugely complex and trying to mm. maintain the single point of truth, as you say, is critical. But Unfortunately, that single point of truth is pretty demanding in terms of constantly needing information. Talk about feeding the beast (laughs) and trying to keep on top of the information flow from on scene to the controlling aspects. Especially if that's a frontline worker who's been injured in the line of duty as well. So the police officer that was injured in that one, understandably, there was a lot of concern that came from Police Scotland looking for details and information about what had happened to the patient, where they'd gone to, what was happening now, what was their condition. And that was repeated requests for information that was coming via ambulance control to myself as a tactical medical advisor. One of the roles of the tactical medical advisor is linking in all the hospitals with the tri-service agencies to make sure that that information is flowing freely as it needs to, but not impairing the work of the emergency department or the frontline responders responding. So it's perfectly understandable that people need to know if one of their responders has become injured, but we have to make sure that they get the right information from the right person as well. And COVID has been an interesting challenge on many fronts, but there have been a couple of incidents since we started playing the COVID game that I suspect have formed even more challenges than they would have done otherwise. Yeah, the the Glasgow City Centre stabbing incident did result in a large press interest and was very unclear as to what happened at first as well. But the rail crash that happened near Stonehaven shortly after that as well was a very, I would say, an unusual incident because of it. So its geographical location was quite remote. Again, difficult communications in and out of the scene, but lots of live pictures, live footage going online quite quickly. This happened, uh, it was an early morning commuter train that was travelling from Aberdeen. And it's possible that there should have been many, many more patients on this train, but for it being COVID times and relative lockdown at that time. So we may have actually had seen many more casualties had this happened in, quote, normal times. This happened in quite a rural setting where there was ongoing works from the scene, the bridge that was being worked on nearby, and that there was bystanders who witnessed this as well, and who were then understandably trying to help out. But this was an interesting one that both of our north and west teams were tasked to with multiple helicopters in and out of the scene, trying to communicate effectively about air safety for those ones. But even just getting that initial methane message out from the scene was particularly challenging because there was no mobile phone reception. So that had to revert to old style runners taking information to where there could be that information passed. And then seeing again live footage of what resources were on scene was both a concern but also quite reassuring that it looked like there were a large number of sort and ambulance service resources and fire resources and then overhead footage from helicopters that showed the exact configuration of the scene and that then gave us some sort of information as to what was happening so some of that can be relatively useful but again the COVID times 
if you have 10 injured P3 casualties and you put them in a patient transport vehicle normally, that's completely fine. Now we have to consider things like social distancing, about the ventilation of these vehicles and how many people can be transferred. So it's really a difficult balance of risk and the judgment of that risk and benefit to get those patients out into hospital quickly, but also to make sure that we don't then completely forget about our requirements of personal protective equipment, social distancing, etc., where it all just becomes a little bit more complicated now. Absolutely. It's worth kind of touching on that as a almost a bit of a theme. We think of major incidents in terms of pure trauma, you know, your crashes, your smashes, your large-scale polytrauma incidents. But there's also, I guess, things like the chemical-type incidents and civil unrest and things that aren't quite so obviously purely traumatic. Yeah, so we've been involved in a number of incidents in the west of Scotland as a service and also in the ambulance service where that can be very difficult to manage incidents in rural Scotland, such as the Gerlock incident in 2010, where there was a kayak with some young children and one adult um, who were injured as their kayak capsized and there were patients in cardiac arrest. So yes, it's a trauma incident, but it's not really what you prepare for as a major incident team. That's not the sort of thing that you look as the likely cause of an incident. The Silverburn chemical leak in 2018, I can't talk too much about the details because I believe there's still ongoing inquiries into that, but that happened shortly after the Shripal incident down in England where um, there was then some concern that this was a deliberate chemical leak and working very closely with our colleagues in SORT and the Fire and Rescue Service makes sure that we can keep our responders safe in those incidents. So any hint of there being chemical leaks any hint of there being active weapons, whether they're bladed or whether it's guns and other weapons on scene. The SORT team work very, very closely with our armed response units and they work closely with the high hazard teams that work with Fire and Rescue, for example, to go in in the appropriate personal protective equipment, assess the scene, assess and stabilise any patients, help with the decontamination and getting them out to out to care as well so that we keep the other responders who are not trained or equipped to work in those scenes safe so that they can then provide that care. And then looking on to the, the recent civil unrest in Glasgow, again, some of this is subject to ongoing police inquiries, so I can't detail it too much, but that was very much a slow burn incident which occurred over many hours and as such was always quite well compensated and that there were always sufficient ambulances, there were always sufficient medical teams including four operating in a casualty clearing station. But that was a very tinderbox atmosphere in George Square that night with a lot of unhappiness and a lot of increasing violence. Um, and when it became clear that there was going to have to be some intervention by the police to disperse the people that had gathered in George Square that night, that then led to almost a major incident on top of a major incident. So there had been numbers of casualties treated through casualty clearing but we were concerned then that we could expect to see a large surge of casualties. And if you could imagine what happened in Glasgow that night was kind of like the worst hug money ever. So there were a lot of people who'd consumed a lot of alcohol, a lot of people who'd had traditional emergency department style injuries, lots of cut heads, lots of people who'd taken too much to drink. That was quite an uncontrolled scene as well, that people were spilling in and out of that area until it was set up as a cordon and the dispersal started as well. And then the last picture from that scene was our clinical lead, Andrew Academy, who's treating one of the police officers who was injured during that as well. So again, responding to frontline responders who've become injured in the line of duty. 
it's natural that we want to go forward to help those people but sometimes that might be in a, a hot zone or a warm zone and we have to make sure that we are adequately equipped to do that and that we know what areas of incidents are safe to respond in and not because our SORC teams respond in areas that we should probably be kept out of when it comes to both interpersonal violence risk but also the chemicals and things that you can experience in major incidents and they are very well used to operating in hazardous circumstances that frankly I'm best kept well away from. And I guess they're also pretty good at establishing that flow of patients back out of that hot zone to folks like yourselves and a slightly cooler area where you can yeah. you can then actually practice some medicine rather than just dodging the stuff that's flying around. Yeah, and having witnessed some of their training and the demonstrations of what they do when we had sort of large-scale major incident training exercises as well, they're operating in circumstances that I wouldn't be effective in, but they're also they're doing the very basics to make sure that someone is stable enough to get out into somewhere that's safe to care for them. So postural drainage, hemorrhage control, basic airway things, and move on to the next casualty to get them triaged as well. So they're very effective at doing that. They also bring large amounts of equipment and personnel with them as well, who are all very well trained and operating in that environment. And while they might not have the exposure to the clinical aspect of paramedicine to and allow them to go on and perform the red team type interventions that we do they're invaluable colleagues to work alongside because they keep me safe they keep the patients safe and they get them to me usually somewhere nice and warm and sheltered with some light and a trestle table so i don't have to hurt my back bending over to treat patients on the ground <laughs> Now, you've made reference to some wider incidents in the UK, and clearly Manchester is in the news at the moment in terms of the ongoing inquest. And I guess we've learned quite a lot from other incidents across the UK and broader as well. The UK has seen its fair share of major incidents over time as well. So the largest of that was obviously the Lockerbie disaster. But incidents like Dunblane, thankfully, in the UK are very, very rare, and we don't see that very often. Every time that comes around in its anniversary, it's a very difficult time, but also reminds us of how lucky we are that that is such a rare occurrence in the UK. The incident in London, 7-7, again, that happened around about the time at which I was leaving medical school. And the numbers of patients that were injured in that were astronomical compared to some of the small incidents that I've talked about just now. Unfortunately, London seems to have been the epicentre for many major incidents and in about an 18-month spell had something like four or five the most difficult one of that for me was Grenfell because many of the sort and heart teams and medical teams prepare and train to respond to interpersonal violence, terrorism, MTA type incidents, but they don't always necessarily think about, well, what happens if we have a tower that goes on fire that we can't necessarily access the top and patients are going to be getting brought out of that for many hours, often with burns and burn type injuries, but also with the chemical type things that can happen to burns patients as well such as carbon monoxide poisoning so that was one that i was very glad i wasn't at and responding to but even remotely up in scotland we learned something from that and we heard the what's called the windscreen report from one of the hems teams who was driving to this scene and gave an airwave report of major incident standby but i've got a large tower block building it's 2 30 in the morning so everyone's in bed and it's fully ablaze and that really evoked the imagery of what we're expecting to see is there's going to be a lot of people in this building because it's night time they're in bed there's not going to be many people out and about and also lots of people aren't going to have been aware that this fire started and have got themselves out already so there's going to be people above and below that fire 
And then the Manchester Arena bombing, which is in the press just now because of the inquiries going on into that as well. In Monkland Hospital, where I worked at the time, we were seeing patients coming the next day who'd been injured, who were in the lobby of that, who were picking up children, people who'd gone down to travel down to that incident. So people from Barra, for example, were unfortunately amongst the dead. So that had a far-reaching influence across the UK, but it was also really one of the biggest incidents that we've had in recent years that involved children and learning about the way that that personally, emotionally causes us to respond in a major incident, but also how we have to learn as a health service about the management of these casualties across the piece, as well as in the pre-hospital environment, the difficulties it causes. And then the last piece I'll say about that is it's led to a lot of attention in the press about the way that we respond to major incidents might not be what the public and the press might expect of us at first. They might not expect that apparently cold, standoffish appearance of a paramedic who has to go into a command role, start communicating and start triaging casualties rather than specifically treating anyone, trying to do the most for the most and trying not to get too involved in individual patient care. Well, that can appear to the press and can be reported in a different way than we would like it to be interpreted from what we've tried to do at that scene. But ultimately, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And certainly looking overseas, there have been some major incidents on a scale that, that's hard to comprehend, really, yeah. in terms of numbers, in terms of volume, in terms of complexity of injuries. And the minute you start getting involved with the treatment of any one patient, actually, the total detriment is going to be huge. Yeah. And incidents that we see across the world, when we're talking about hundreds to thousands of people injured at things like 9-11 and Mumbai incidents, the Atoya incident, which was a very good Netflix documentary type film about, which led to a number of things that we've changed locally about how we communicate in major incidents as well. And then even finding out that one of your retrieval practitioner colleagues might have been a responder to the Atoya incident and been able then to learn from each other about that one. But things like the Boston Marathon, where there were numbers of limb injuries and the, the benefits of tourniquets and saving lives and incidents like that. The Paris incident, which gave us a big insight into the way that healthcare is organised in France, where they managed to field more medical teams to the incident than we would be able to field across an entire UK over a 24-hour period. But the numbers of casualties they dealt with at that, there was about 137 people killed, I believe and 400 and something patients injured, are almost 100 of those critically injured. The size and scale of those incidents, thankfully, we've not had to deal with in the UK for quite some time. And then the last two incidents to talk about there, the Las Vegas shooting incident where 59 people were killed and 851 injured, but one 700-bed hospital received almost 200 patients and 150 of them arrived in the first hour. And that's just staggering numbers when it comes to the numbers of operations that would have to be provided, the numbers of critical care interventions that would have to be done as those patients arrived at hospital. And then Christchurch and White Island, as some of the HEM services in the Southern Hemisphere have been developing their major incident preparedness, we in Scotland have given them some of our learning, some of our training, some of the things that we've done in the past, and they've been able to adapt and use that for their own training and development of their major incident plans. And thankfully, whilst it's a big world and White Island's a long way from here. We knew some of the teams that were responding on that day as well. So it is a big world, but it's a small pre-hospital care environment and we all get to know each other and, and help. And, you know, you'd really be forgiven for thinking that the world is descending into chaos. And if you watch the news, that's sometimes what it feels like. 
But if we can finish up this section by pointing people to a good book by a guy called Stephen Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature, it would actually suggest that the world is a less violent place than any time in our history of humanity. So although it looks from my training and experience like the world is descending into anarchy and chaos, actually it's quite a peaceful and quiet time. Certainly as I look out my window this evening at a beautiful hillside and some sunshine as well, it certainly feels like we're living in a pretty good place and it's worth remembering that sometimes as well. Absolutely. JP, we're going to pause there and I'm keen to kind of dig into some of the details of how to act and and what things to keep in mind for major incidents. But what we'll do is we'll pause there and we'll come back next week and touch on some more areas. Yeah, that sounds perfect. We'll speak to you next week. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.